These are Nebraska corn farmers. They work in acres, not hours, harvesting the energy and climate solutions the world needs. We are proud to stand with you. The success of tomorrow's soy industry depends on the actions we take today. The future is here, and the time to move is now. Market Journal Television for Agricultural Business Decisions is a presentation of the University of Nebraska-Lincoln's Institute of Agriculture and Natural Resources in partnership with the Nebraska Rural Radio Association. Promotional support provided by the Nebraska Farmer Magazine and partial funding provided by the Nebraska Soybean Board and the Nebraska Corn Board. Hi everyone, I'm Bryce Duskit and thank you so much for joining us this week on Market Journal. Winter weather has certainly been the key story over the past week. Is summer relief when it comes to those frigid temperatures finally on the way? We'll get insights from Eric Hunt coming up here on the show. UNL plant pathologist Dylan Mangel is back to share some strategies he has for tackling soybean cyst nematode. SCN, as we call it, has been a big challenge for soybean growers across the region. Plus, stay tuned for Doug Simon, who will give us an update when it comes to the grain market. We'll get to that coming up here in a few moments, but first. It smells like money. That's at least what my dad used to tell me about the manure pile. Due to its fertility value, manure can be a helpful resource on the farm. At the same time, though, it is a hazard due to odors and other pathogens. That's why Nebraska Extension will be offering land application training days at several locations across the state beginning in February. Starting in Columbus on February 12th, in-person training sessions will be underway for recently permitted operations that have not yet completed the initial land application training, as well as additional educational training that is required every five years for permitted operations. However, the door is open to any farmers, farm staff, or advisors who may be interested in livestock manure management. Um, the training sessions that are, are for manure application, not just in the wintertime, but all times of the year. So we cover topics uh, when we would more likely be applying manure, mostly a lot of times in the fall or the spring, sometimes in the summer, depending on our crops. But um, the people that should be attending those trainings, so they are required by some of our larger livestock operations that have waste control facility permits. And so that's how we have tailored them. However, they are incredibly useful useful for anybody that utilizes manure on their cropland. So um, your crop farmers that are buying manure can get a lot out of those trainings. They're going to get a lot of agronomy type stuff. How are we going to get the most for, from our manure? How can we apply it to the land to get the most fertilizer benefits out of it and not waste those nutrients or risk them getting into water? There is a cost to attend for those that are required to attend and therefore have to certify. It is by operation. So if you have um, just one operation, it's $75, regardless of whether you bring two people or one person or 10 people. Um, it's per operation for those. Uh, if you are just attending for your own purposes, maybe you're that crop farmer that is utilizing manure or you're that smaller operation, it is $25 per person so that we could have that open to anybody that wanted to attend because those wouldn't be receiving any sort of certification, but they can certainly come and learn uh, a whole lot. 
If you're interested in attending one of the application training sessions, your first opportunity will be in Columbus on Monday, February 12th at the Platte County Extension Office with an initial session running from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. and recertification running in the afternoon from 1 to 4. From there, you'll have several more opportunities to attend beginning in Geneva on Tuesday, February 13th at the Geneva Public Library, Scotts Bluff on Monday, February 19th at the Panhandle Research and Extension Center, Tuesday, February 20th in Lexington at the Dawson County Extension Office, Thursday, February 29th at the Madison County Extension Office in Norfolk, and two more dates in March, one on the 5th and 6th in West Point and Ord, respectively. As Leslie mentioned, there is a $75 fee to attend per operation, and lunch will be included for those attending all-day training sessions. Any fees paid by credit card will be due upon registration. Check or cash payments will be accepted at the door. If you'd like to register or find out some additional information, simply head over to the website water.unl.edu. You're also encouraged to reach out to uh, Leslie directly if you're interested in gaining some additional information about a specific event. Her phone number is listed here at the bottom of your screen now. Up next, let's dive into some cutting edge technology, virtual fencing. This, is a, this innovation has caught the attention of cattle producers over the past few years and for good reason. During our visit last summer out to the Goodmans and Sandhills Laboratory, we were treated to a demonstration showcasing how this technology can assist cattle producers. Let's get a closer look. Virtual fencing refers to utilizing GPS technology in order to create an invisible area that functions similarly to a physical fence. This new technology is a way to manage cattle to stay within or away from designated areas. At the Goodmans and Sandhills Laboratory, research is currently being conducted to better understand how virtual fencing might complement cattle management strategies. So right now we're looking at a lot of options with precision livestock management. And one of those options that's currently become available is the use of virtual fencing. And uh, virtual fencing is a tool that, that essentially is similar to what you might put on a dog to keep it in your yard. Uh, it uses it uses GPS uh, to 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 know or to to see where that cow's at, and you're able to create fences on a laptop or a computer uh, that that would then uh, keep those cattle within a defined area that you could move frequently. Uh, and so we're conducting some research looking at how that might be applicable uh, within a grazing system in the Sandhills. It's a collar that fits around the neck of the animal, um, and and it it, uh, it it gives a sound audio cue when uh, when when those cattle come up to a line, a user-defined line, and that's as a warning. And if they keep moving on to that, it'll give them a mild shock. And what we found is it's fairly effective. That once cattle learn that behavior, learn what those signals are telling them, they they quickly associate that sound with okay, this is where I need to stop, and uh, and and for the most part, they won't go past that. And so so we're looking at at how this affects some of the behavior of cattle, and uh, and 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 better understand how this can be used in in a, in a larger operation. To, to really manage grazing. And so really thinking about how do we keep cattle away from areas they may graze too much and maybe put them in areas where they may not like to graze as much and, and to help uh, provide a little bit more targeted, strategic type grazing on a landscape. Utilizing virtual fencing gives producers the ability to locate grazing cattle actively and accurately. This means there are new opportunities for commercial success by cutting down on additional labor costs and improving pasture management as well as resource allocation for producers. 
you know, we, we have a long-term data set here where we're looking at plant biomass and how that relates to drought. And so it goes back to 2004 that we've collected plant biomass by plant functional group. And so we have uh, cool season grasses, warm season grasses, forb shrubs uh, in our plant community here. And it's a, it's a fairly diverse uh, uh, plant community that we have here in the Sandhills. And so this long-term data sets really allowed us to look at uh, how, how these uh, uh, plant communities uh, might shift uh, within really wet years or dry years, wet springs or dry summers. And so, so we're, we've, we've been analyzing that data set here over the last several months, exploring some of those things and, and really seeing that there's some dynamics there at play based on when that precipitation comes, uh, when drought happens, uh, how that plant community responds to drought. Uh, for example, in 2013, we just saw a tremendous flush of annual forbs after the drought in 2012. And uh, so so there's really some interesting dynamics at play year to year in our plant community that we're exploring. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the big thing is just managing managing your grass, and so so oftentimes that comes with cuts or or adjusting how you graze, and so cuts in your numbers. Uh, there's just not as much biomass there. You know, this long-term data sets allowed us to see that you know between the driest year and the wettest year, it could be as much as three times difference uh, in terms of the biomass that's available to those animals. And so that adaptive management is challenging when you have when you have that much variability, um, and and so. So uh, it's, it's, it's just being mindful and, and watching that rainfall, when that rainfall's coming, uh, can model it pretty well uh, in terms of how much is available out there. And then just having some other options available. You know, a lot, a lot of times if, if, we, if our, our grasslands can, can, uh, can bounce back after a drought, it just takes a little bit of time and recovery. And so that rest is really important, uh, especially if during a drought you might graze a little bit heavier, the following year's management's important. The big thing is, is, is can, it, can it equate to more grazing days? Uh, you know, with better distribution, better, better utilizing the resource, uh, that's probably a benefit. Uh, and it cuts down on labor too. You don't need to be out there putting electric fence or, you know, uh, other fences in. Uh, and and uh, it allows some, some more labor savings in that way. While options for purchase on a tracking system of this magnitude may be a high dollar investment at this point in time, it's easy to see the upsides that this technology can have for producers in the very near future. Reporting for Market Journal, I'm Bill Dodd. Thanks for sharing that insight with us, Bill. We appreciate it. For those eager to dive a bit deeper into this technology and some of the ongoing research that's happening at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, check out all the details at beef.unl.edu. Just search for the term GPS and you find everything you need to know. Let's shift our attention now over to the markets. Joining us on the desk, Doug Simon from TradeOS. Doug, good to see you. Good to see you. Let's talk about the reports that came out last week. Some notable things happened. In particular, let's start on the U.S. front. What did USDA say, in particular for corn and soybeans? What's the storyline? Well, the big surprise is they increased the yields on corn by, what was it, four-tenths of a bushel and seven-tenths of a bushel on the soybeans. So that was, a, I think, contrary to what most analysts, what people were expecting, what farmers were thinking based on what they were seeing in the fields. They did cut the harvested acres, um, just about 500,000 acres on each one of those. But that still left us with the increase in production. And when you look at the bottom line on soybeans, it increased our carryovers up toward 
285 million bushels, which is a pretty substantial increase up by about 35 to 40 million bushels. And then on the corn side, actually, we increased a little bit there on the on the caribou, but not as significantly as the beans. But those were the big, um, big surprises. China corn production also was up 11 million metric tons. That went straight into world care over and that was a big surprise. But not everybody always has a lot of confidence in those Chinese numbers. So we'll see where that where that comes out here in the next year. There's always the traders report, get to their thoughts on what's going to happen. And the theme of this, uh, the reports from last Friday were higher than expected. In particular, I want to zero in on some of the Nebraska numbers. I noted this one, the uh, USDA projection now for Nebraska corn yield for the past year, 182 bushels an acre. Let's look at that number though, back in November, USDA was projecting 173, big increase there. You told me though, the soybean number surprised you. Well, just talking to farmers that we work with across the state, there was a lot of variability in yields this year on irrigated and on dry land. Um, you know, the non-irrigated yields actually east of here, you know, by Waverly were not great, but you got further into Cass County, they're pretty good. But I see a lot of people had, I think, problems with irrigation this year, keeping up or starting too early, or they had different varieties. It, it seems like the weather conditions hurt the, the soybean yields worse around here from what I saw in terms of yields. Corn was maybe a little more resilient, but there was a lot of variability too. You had some really good yields in Southeast Nebraska on non-irrigated corn, and but some variability on the irrigated as well. Where do we go with the information from those reports when it comes to in particular corn and soybean trade moving forward? Well, I always like to look at the futures. We talked about that a little bit. The basis right now is real firm because of the cold weather. Columbus has been trading up toward 40, 45 over, you know, Blair's in that kind of 30 level. So um, a lot of the ethanol plants out, you know, Aurora kind of out that way or 20 over, you know, into the kind of Jan Feb. So there's some decent basis levels out there. The futures though are at a depressed level, both now on the beans and the corn, especially after that. So I don't really necessarily like the futures levels in here, but whenever the basis is good, that's always the trigger to move the merchandise, you know, merchandise it and worry about the futures later. But um, and then you're gonna to have to look into new crop, you know, I think as well. We're coming up on a time where seasonally we like to start pricing new crop corn. We've already done some because if you look at where anhydrous prices were, you kind of lock an increment of there. But there's some good options that you can use out there to puts to protect, you know, corn for new crop. And then old crop, if you sell that, there are some call strategies you can put in place to keep some ownership, which is what high interest costs now. It's a lot cheaper to own it that way than it is to just put it in the elevator and pay five cents and give up five cents of interest that you could be earning. So there's a big cost of just storing and waiting So right now. Back on the basis front, good basis, but I suppose the question is, can you even move grain in some of the areas? Of well, that's why the, the basis state. is so good. I mean, literally people were, everything's snowed in and drifted in and it's really difficult. There's some moving last Thursday and Friday, uh, slowed down over the weekend, obviously, but looks like, you know, we had a little bit of break here yesterday and today. And, um, more snow again today, potentially, but yeah, it's, it's gonna be really tough. But the weather two weeks out looks like it's gonna warm up. So to me, it's like, okay, you should be looking at those basis levels today and trying to get something locked in because there's what, if we've got 2.1 billion bushels of corn, you know, carryover and versus 1 billion, you know, 1.2 billion last year, there's definitely corn out here that can mm -hmm. move at some point. Nebraska might be a little tighter than the Eastern Corn Belt, but that those basis levels were gonna normalize. So you wanna be moving that corn take advantage of that basis now. Okay, I want to get to a viewer question that came in, an interesting one, noting on the, the corn futures side of things, viewer asks, is it more realistic at this point in this winter time frame to see $5 corn or corn in the $3 area? Your thoughts, uh, Doug? That's a good question, that's a tough question. Now, if I'm trading the Columbus basis at 40 over, I think it'd be more likely we get to $5, but if we're trading at a 30 under basis at some of the remote, you know, kind of locations, 
yeah, that $4 level, we're not that far away from $4 corn in some of those areas. But when you look at us being really oversold here right now, it seems like we'd have a chance. Markets never go straight down. Just seems like technically there was a lot of washout after that report, a lot of volume on Friday in that report. So I guess, but I'm not wildly bullish where I think corn is going to go, you know, back up a dollar like we did in the last two years. We had some big moves, but, you know, we could get, you know, 20, 30, 40 cent bounce in here just because. And the weather in Brazil is going to be really important going forward. We're going to have to watch that. that there are some other interesting things happening down there that are important to keep an eye on. Yeah. Back here in the U.S., how does demand look for corn and soybeans? You know, corn is lagging the pace that we need to be on to meet the USDA goal. It's better than last year um, in terms of the actual exports, but the pace is a little slow. Beans are right on pace, so we're doing doing well that, that way. But as uh, South American production starts coming off, we're running into deeper basis discounts down there, and our, our window is going to shut here in the next two months. Okay. Let's get your final thoughts. What else you want to share with us this week? Well, looking forward to 2024. We're at 475 on corn um, right now in the futures. The uh, beans are down toward 12 bucks. There's anticipation that we're probably going to shift some of the acres out of corn into beans by maybe two to four million acres. If we would add that many acres to soybeans uh, because of the, there's a little more better break even uh, prices in the beans relative to the corn, could see those extra, really would balloon our carryout. So again, we need to be looking at pricing new crop. On, especially on rallies, we need to be definitely looking at the corn. If we can get back toward five bucks, to be looking at putting some floors underneath that or just going out and hedging it. Um, so that's, that's what you want to be looking at. Good stuff there with Doug. As always, we appreciate his time this week. Here on Market Journal, we invite your questions. So if you have one for one of our future guests, go ahead and email us or get in touch on social media, and I'll be sure to pass your question along. Boosting soil health and enhancing microbial activity in the soil is a shared goal among farmers. They understand that investing in soil health practices does pay off. Doug Steffen, a farmer from Knox County, is embarking on a journey himself to cultivate his soil booster. He's using compost extract as a seed treatment and post-plant applications to nourish beneficial soil microbes on his farm. For a deeper dive into some of his efforts, you can check out the January issue of the Nebraska Farmer. It's time once again to check in on when it comes to weather with Nebraska Extension Ag Climatologist and Market Journal Chief Meteorologist Eric Hunt. Well, Eric, we got the snow plus the Arctic blast that no one wanted. As we move ahead, can we expect some maybe warmer days ahead? Well, thanks, Bryce. Yes, we do have some warmer conditions uh, coming next week. Uh, though being locked in a deep freeze would have been warmer than it was being outside in Nebraska for most of last weekend. Speaking of the recent cold, with this polar vortex stretching, we had uh, our second coldest 10-day uh, period on record for January 8th through 17th. Uh, for most of the state, uh, just slightly above that in eastern Nebraska, we got very, very cold for a lot of the western and central U.S. with this uh, most recent cold snap. Uh, the good news, though, is we will be warming up this week. So uh, cold Saturday, uh, still kind of chilly on Sunday, uh, but definitely moderating temperatures, getting probably into the upper 20s uh, for most of the state, probably a little bit above that in western Nebraska. Uh, we'll be relatively breezy, so it's not going to be a very pleasant day. Um, as we head the week, I think we're really generally going to see our temperatures kind of right around freezing or still a little above during the day and a little bit below it at night, um, colder in western Nebraska. Uh, but we're going to see high pressure kind of anchored here over the southeastern United States with some return flow, uh, bringing warm, moist air back into our region of the country, uh, which is good news. But we're going over a lot of deep snowpack, and that's going to lead to uh, a lot of clouds, uh, potentially some fog and freezing drizzle. That's not the official forecast right now, but I would pay attention to it, particularly in eastern Nebraska. Uh, and temperatures will be just kind of generally uh, not much diurnal range between uh, day and night. Uh, we will have some chances for light rain and light snow across the state Monday night into Tuesday. And then a stronger storm will be pushing from Texas into Illinois 
later in the week. Right now, it looks like eastern Nebraska on the western edge of that for some chances of light rain or light snow. Uh, 8 to 14 day alert from the CPC is showing above normal temperatures. Again, I think we will definitely be much warmer going through the end of the month, uh, but I think that'll be mostly at the, at the expense of overnight lows. I think our daytime high temperatures will be just kind of right around average to slightly above average in the 30s. Uh, definitely expecting some wetter than average conditions for most of the eastern uh, two-thirds of the United States, including the eastern half of Nebraska as we head toward the end of the month. Again, but I don't think we're looking at any really significant precipitation events, uh, so I don't think we're looking at any more you know, one-foot snows anywhere in the state, thankfully. Uh, the good news on the drought monitors, we did see a little bit more improvement this week into parts of Burton, Washington counties going from D2 to D1. Uh, and as I mentioned last week, we no longer have any D4 in the state, and that's the first time since July of 2022. Uh, precipitation, almost the entire state got some moisture. The heaviest precipitation was from about Columbus over to Omaha, where we had the heavier snow last Thursday night into Friday. Uh, we did have some snow out in the Panhandle earlier this week. They did kind of miss out on the, some of the bigger snows that we had uh, in the central and eastern part of the state late last week. Uh, snowfall in the last, uh, say, 12 days has been heaviest in the eastern part of the state. Uh, a bit more recently out here in the Panhandle, uh, you know, southwestern Nebraska, Ogallala, down Imperial. I'm sorry, you've missed out on most recent snowfall. You don't know how lucky you are. Uh, but with the snow cover, we have had soil temperatures generally staying uh, above freezing in southeastern Nebraska and kind of right around it. Now, this is under grass cover, not bare soil, uh, where we've had less snowpack. It's, uh, soil temperatures are colder in western Nebraska. Soil moisture, generally speaking, is still kind of slowly improving across the state, with the exception of the southwest and southern part of the Panhandle. Uh, current snow cover, again, we have about a foot on the ground in a lot of eastern Nebraska, 6 to 10 inches in parts of central Nebraska, and less amounts in western Nebraska. And some upcoming events, we have the South Central Water Conference in Holdridge and two soil health conferences, one in West Point, one in Hastings, uh, late February and March. Thanks. Back to you, Bryce. All right. Thank you very much, Eric. We do appreciate your time. Let's turn back our attention back to soybean diseases and pathogens that deserve our attention as we approach the upcoming 2024 growing season. Making the right seed selection plays a pretty crucial role when mitigating potential damage caused by threats to like soybean cyst nematode or Phytophthora. We sat down with University of Nebraska Lincoln plant pathologist Dylan Mangel to get some of his insights when it comes to the significance of seed selection as a strategy for disease control. Joining us on Crop Talk this week is Dylan Mangel from Nebraska Extension. Dylan, today, during these winter months, we're going to talk a little about soybean seed selection. Mm -hmm. A lot of different options out there. Perhaps some producers made their choices back in the fall, but now's a good time when you're in these winter months to really study this and look at what you should be doing on your farm. Your thoughts, big picture. Yeah, so we, there's a lot of options out there. Um, you know, talking to those local advisors, figuring out what's going to work best for you um, is very important. But, you know, just as we start to analyze last field season and think about what happened and think about some options, it's really good to take a look back uh, and, and consider variety selection and trying to find varieties that are going to work really well under the disease conditions that you dealt with in the past. One of the things we want to break down today is the difference between resistance and field tolerance. Mm -hmm. So there's two kinds of resistance when you think about uh, a plant not being susceptible to a disease. The first kind is true resistance, which is dependent on a resistance gene. Um, there's a couple different types of, of genes that you might see in the catalog that we'll get to, but the other kind is field tolerance. Those are the numbered scales, typically one through nine, rating how good this variety will do under a certain disease. When it comes to some of the specific things that we have a chance to catch up with you during the growing season, uh, we'll get a couple of them here, but I saw some news on the national level. Might have a breakthrough when it comes to soybean cyst nematode. That has been a challenging thing to deal with, but might have some breeding programs addressing that coming down the pipeline. Do I understand that right? 
Yeah, so what happened in, var in variety trials in the, in the Midwest, in Iowa, they, they saw that varieties with the resistance gene peaking, as opposed to PI88788, the other resistance source for soybean cyst nematode, they're looking really good under SCN pressure. Now, it, it takes breeding programs a little bit of time to, to breed up these good backgrounds and get these resistance genes in there. So um, what we saw in those variety trials is that peaking is looking really good. Under SCN pressure, it's, it's out yielding a lot of PI88788 varieties. So we're really recommending that growers try a peaking variety under your SCN uh, fields with SCN pressure. Um, and do that based off of testing. So again, I'll just mention uh, the Nebraska Soybean Board funds a testing program for any Nebraska growers. If they have questions about that, they can reach out for the, to the UNL Plant and Pest Diagnostic Clinic. But uh, start by testing, figure out where you've got that pressure and try a peaking variety on those acres. I understand there's an online profit tracker. It's the SCN Profit Checker, and you can enter mm -hmm. some information there, help give you a little heads up going into the next growing season. Mm -hmm. So scnprofitchecker.com, if you go there, you can put in some basic information about your field, and it can show you how much yield you're likely use, losing to SCN uh, if, you're, if you're using a PI88788 variety. Now, I still want to recommend using that source if you don't have other options, but try rotating that with newer sources as well as those come out. And, and make those tools last as long as possible for resistance. A couple other concerns that soybean growers have had, Phytophthora and white mold. That's right. So uh, another, another resistance gene situation is Phytophthora. It showed up later than normal in 2023, but it did show up as soon as we got those first, those, that first flush of moisture uh, or in those fields that were irrigated. Kind of the first time you turn on that pivot, it really wakes up those spores and they go and infect the plants then. So we did see it. If you had problems like that in fields, and you think you might in other fields next year, uh, consider a variety with a resistance gene to Phytophthora. That'll go a long way, and those will be in the catalog called under RPS genes. Okay. Finally, also want to bring up sudden death syndrome. It can be as scary as the name is out in the fields. Yep. So the alternative to resistance sources are those disease ratings. And while there's not publicized resistance genes for sudden death syndrome, they are they do have good ratings for disease or for field tolerance to sudden death syndrome. Um, and those are very meaningful specifically for that disease. So if you've got history of areas, if you've got areas with a history of it, try and pair one of those this year and that can really decrease the amount of yield you could lose to sudden death syndrome. It's good to have uh, kind of the big picture thoughts as you continue to study these, these issues for soybean producers year round. But for our local producers today, the local advisor is a pretty good resource for them, right? That's right. If you, if, if nothing else, Try to figure out what problems you're having in those fields and take that to your local to, to your local advisors and tell them, you know, I've dealt with white mold in this field or I've dealt with this uh, and, and ask them to help you find a, a product or a variety that's going to work good under those conditions for you. Okay. What else do you want to share with us, Dylan? If you're not sure what disease you're dealing with, reach out to the UNL Plant and Pest Diagnostic Clinic. It's a great value just to figure out exactly what you're dealing with if you're going to make an investment on a management decision based off of that. Thanks to Dylan for sharing his expertise with us here on the show. And since we're on the topic, do want to have you mark your calendars for an upcoming event. Dylan Mangel is going to be part of an event hosted by Nebraska Extension. It's the Eastern Nebraska Corn and Soybean Expo on Thursday, January 25th at the Eastern Nebraska Research and Extension Center located near Meat. Details for that event are posted at the bottom of your screen now. Don't miss out on the event again January 25th. Well, that concludes this week's edition of Market Journal. If you didn't miss one of our stories, catch up by following Market Journal over on our YouTube page. You can also follow us on social media. We look forward to seeing you back here next time. But until then, I'm Bryce Duskit, wishing you a safe and productive week.
join Market Journal online at marketjournal.unl.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Promotional support is provided by the Nebraska Farmer Magazine. Market Journal is produced by the University of Nebraska-Lincoln's Institute of Agriculture and Natural Resources.